From Radio Vermont, it's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. It's your show about the people, places, and the issues that matter the most to you. Now here's your host, Dave Graham. Good morning, Vermont. It is Tuesday morning, the, uh, I'm sorry, Wednesday morning. The, uh, I'll get caught up eventually. Wednesday morning, the 30th of September. And thank you very much for joining me this morning. Uh, we have a good full show lined up for you. We're going to be uh, talking to an intergenerational debate review squad here. Uh, in the first half hour, we're going to be talking with Dave Kelly, a longtime Vermont debate coach. Uh, I think he's been doing high school debate coaching for more than 20 years. And, uh, we also talk, are, t- are going to be talking to one of, uh, Dave's former, uh, coaches. Is that a word? I don't even know. But, uh, one of his former, uh, debaters, uh, James, James Tedesco, uh, went to, uh, Hazen Union High School in, uh, Harwood, uh, Hazen Union High School in Hardwick. I gotta untie the tongue this morning. Uh, Hazen Union High School in Hardwick and is now a student at the University of Vermont in political science. Uh, he's on the, uh, Lawrence Debate Union at UVM and, uh, we're gonna be speaking with the two of them. One, I think, uh, early 20s, and the other one, uh, well, you know, late 60s or something like that. So we get a good good range there. Anyway, uh, we're, we're speaking to those gentlemen in the first half hour here of the program this morning about last night's um, <clears throat> debate, I guess, if that I'm going to first ask, was it a debate or was it something else uh, of these gentlemen? And then uh, in the second half hour of the show, we're going to be talking about getting your flu shot. It is that season. Tis the season for getting the flu shot. And uh, Haley Hooks of uh, Kinney Drugs is going to be joining us to uh, talk to us about the whys and wherefores of getting you know, getting your uh, your flu shot. It uh, should be an interesting conversation. Uh, there's a lot of questions about it. Actually, it's amazing how many many people are very very uh, concerned, and uh, and uh, some folks eagerly lining up, other people uh, not so much. And uh, so we'll be hearing from uh, Haley Hooks. I think she is. She's a, she is a vote in favor of getting uh, your flu shot. Just uh, I don't want to give it all away ahead of time, but there you go. And then in the latter hour of the program, we are going to be speaking with Dr. Alan Ramsey. He's the medical director of the People's Health and Wellness Clinic in Barrie. And uh, we're going to be talking with him about the special challenges faced by people who don't have health insurance especially during this COVID-19 crisis, and just the institutional challenges faced by the People's Health and Wellness Clinic, this organization that tries to deliver health care to people without insurance, and uh, how they have fared during the pandemic. So we'll be doing all that in the uh, second hour. And... Um, and in between, right, in right, just after the top of the hour at ten o'clock or ten o five or so, we're going to be speaking with uh, a CBS News correspondent who will uh, give us a, uh, some perspective on the debate last night as well. But speaking of that debate, let's get right into our discussion of it this morning. We have with us on the phone uh, James Tedesco, University of Vermont student, and uh, Dave Kelly, longtime Vermont debate coach. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. I'm always glad to be here. Hey, uh, let me let me start with you, James. Uh, you uh, obviously are a, a close student of debate and and understand what the, what a debate really is and how it is supposed to go because you've been uh, a participant in this in recent years, high school and now at, at UVM. Was that a debate last night? <laughs> uh, that's a good first principles question to ask. Uh, I think that the what has happened on this stage is not a debate, and I think this kind of shift is something that's been experienced in all sorts of corners of life and and dialogue. Uh, no matter how formalized, it's been, like, we talk so much about what happens with norms, 
And I think when we look at this debate, we also need to begin thinking about how rules shape the way debates happen. And I think now might be a good time to think about how we use rules in debates and stop letting the name of the debate try and, like, define what it is and think about how we can structurally make those kind of conversations more sound again. Dave Kelly, what do you think? Was that a debate? Well, I, I, I agree with, with James. No, it wasn't a debate. The format didn't allow a debate. Um, there was no policy discussion. Uh, nobody. Wa- I think a lot of people probably turned that off after 30 minutes. Um, that was like a bully picking on a skinny kid on the beach. It wasn't a debate. Um, I think that uh, we need to change the format, um, and we should do something along the lines of... of uh, traditional high school or college debate where uh, a specific amount of time, say 10 minutes, not two minutes, is allocated to a complex policy issue. Um, and there's no interrupting. You know, in a high school debate, if people behave that way, I'd stop the debate. Civility is, is among the first rules of meaningful debate. James, uh, I'm wondering, you, you know, you, you talked about the norms uh, being violated, basically. Uh, I, I don't know if that was really your exact word, but uh, that seems to be what has been happening here, and um, mainly by by the president. And, and you know, I, I must say, I've been hearing a lot of media reports uh, talking about how this debate devolved, or this debate was, uh, happened amid chaos. Uh, last night I heard one radio report this morning say that it happened amid chaos, and I said, well, maybe, uh, maybe you need to report who actually brought the chaos, uh, you know, because that there is some responsibility here, and I and I and I think sometimes the way these things get phrased can can evade the uh, the assigning of responsibility, which is probably not a good thing. Uh, it, who brought the chaos first off last night, uh, James? Would you say? Well, it, it's obviously clear that Donald Trump brought the chaos. It's obviously clear that at some point throughout the night, Chris Wallace, the moderator. And Joe Biden chuckled at the same time at what seems to be the same issue, which was Donald Trump interrupting. And that's not to say that Joe Biden was without his own faltering moments where he also interrupted. Uh, it was a low bar with his to make no interruption and let Trump completely execute that move. Uh, but the kind of attacks that Trump launched in uh, a blatantly ad hominem way at his son, who had served in war and has passed away, uh, on on his son who has overcome drug addiction and struggled with drug addiction, uh, those, I think, are hardly fair. Uh, I think those conditions excuse Joe Biden's response. I don't think, uh, I think it would be challenging to spot such an excuse for Donald Trump's uh, disregard for decorum and civility. Uh, Dave Kelly, in, in terms of the uh, co- comparisons with past presidential debates, uh, does anything come close no, I, I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't know. When you stop and think about the fact that this is the presidency of the United States and this is the best we can do, um, I, I just think that's a sad, painful thought. Uh, but if you go back and listen to the Kennedy-Nixon debate, which really began a format that's not a good format, the format should be something along the lines of the Lincoln-Douglas debates where they had... Uh, we couldn't possibly do what they did, where they spoke for um, an afternoon and each given substantial amounts of time, as much as an hour uh, each. Um, uh, we can't do that. People don't have the patience uh, 
anymore. People, you know, have gravitated to this hit-and-run dialogue, which is not serving democracy very well. Um, but we need to do something to change the format. And, and we need to change the rules. We, 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 this kind of behavior just can't be acceptable going into the future. Turn the mic off. Well, I was going to ask about that, actually, at some point in this conversation. Uh, Dave, do you, do you think, I mean, you know, one possible solution here would be to mute the mic of the person whose, t- whose turn it's not. Uh, should that happen in future debates? The notion that you would have to do that uh, among people running for the presidency of the United States is, is just, you know, to me it's inconceivable. Um, I, I can't. You know, I, I can't imagine Richard Nixon or John Kennedy behaving this way. Um, I, it's just, I, 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 you know, we shouldn't have to have rules like that, but we do, we do need to change the format. I don't know why we have to have a moderator. We should have set topics. Um, there should be a set amount of time, enough time to explain positions and, uh, and, and have real genuine debates with rebuttals. Refresh me. Debates in Vermont <clears throat> high school debates, for instance, uh, uh, do not have moderators, or there there are no. co- coaches around. There's a judge, right? There, there's a judge. There's an audience. Frequently in a championship debate, there's a large audience. We can sometimes fill the House of Representatives at sometimes with with some of the high schools that are in the final championship rounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but no, you don't have a moderator. You have well-behaved, intelligent people who are well-read, who appreciate language, who understand the rules, and who are incredibly civil to each other. I will say this, in the last, uh, in the last few years, high school debate has degenerated somewhat, and the behavior at the national level has filtered down to, um, to, to the rest of our, uh, um, programs. Whose behavior at the national level? Well, I, 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 quite frankly, I, I think that um, uh, there's there's probably enough blame to go around. I think that the toxicity that uh, President Trump brought with him to the White House has been a major con- contribution. But I think the behavior of people in Washington, D.C. has had an influence. Um, well, give me some know, specific I, examples. What other behavior and... Who's responsible? I mean, are we talking about, I mean, I'm just trying to think of, uh, you know, do you think that Nancy Pelosi has misbehaved in the way she's conducted herself? Do you think that uh, Adam Schiff has misbehaved? Uh, I don't know, Mitch McConnell? I, I, who, I, I think the atmosphere has become vitriolic and toxic. Um, I think, um, you know, when, when you talk about, you call people stupid, you call people clowns, um, and these are the highest offices in the land, um, you, you you know, at some point you have to say, I'm not going to engage in this behavior. James, what did you think when uh, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden last night called President Trump a clown? <laughs> uh, I thought that was really unfortunate. I, I, I just thought, I felt like Trump did a lot to put the bar basically on the ground for Biden to clear. And I think on balance, he did that. But that was a low moment for me. It, uh, I think it must have been strategic. The kind of repeated use of that kind, uh, that name calling, calling him a fool, saying "shut up, man," that had to have been a calculated decision in advance with his campaign team to try and seem stronger in light of an opponent who they knew was going to come out tough. Um, 
I actually, uh, while we're talking about the way that Biden responded to Trump and how they negotiate that conversation amongst themselves and how that's become toxic, I actually want to push back on the necessity of a moderator. Um, I think moderators are really important. I can't imagine what tonight would have, uh, what last night would have looked like without a moderator, uh, especially because once we recognize that uh, Trump's strategy in a debate is not to persuade, it's to encourage turnout. It's to take the people who already think he's a, a good guy and it's to try and rile them up and get them to the polls. So it's not about converting uncertain voters. It's just about pushing the people who already feel warmly toward him to the polls. Uh, and I think because of that mentality, there's no understanding of the rules. There's no prior agreements. There's no extended amount of time which will remove the aggressive tone of that conversation. I think there are lots of uh, structural changes that could happen to, like, dampen those harmful effects. But I think a moderator is really important. I think that sense of neutrality, I think Chris Wallace did uh, honestly as good a job as I think you can expect from someone to try and rein it in. Uh, those those were hard moments, which he had to fight against. Uh, I, I agree with Dave, though. I think that muting the microphones would just be unimaginable, that the highest office in the land, we need to give them, like, child restraints. <laughs> now, now James, and James, in all of the time that you've debated, and I'm sure I know you've had some very intense debates in high school and college, did you ever need a moderator? Honestly, uh, I, and this, is, this brings up another interesting point. It's that the, the shift in the culture of debate toward these more ad hominem and aggressive attacks, which, we, which I saw in high school, which I've seen in college debate formats, uh, is something which the debater shouldn't have to wrestle with. It shouldn't be the burden, the onus of the debater to wrestle with that. And that's because what it does is instead of putting your intellectual energies toward considering, considering arguments, considering rebuttals, you have to now devote time to strategizing how you're going to show that your opponent is slandering you. And suddenly you suck the oxygen out of the room. Uh, there were certainly moments where I wish deeply there was a moderator to really rein it in. You described to yourself that if someone behaved like this in a high school debate round, you would have stopped the round. That would have, in some senses, been the role of a moderator. Uh, and I think also moderators play uh, a valuable role in directing the conversation. There are 101 facets in order to investigate, and a moderator can help sometimes find the nuance about which one we should follow up on, uh, which ones we might need to let go tonight. Uh, yeah. So we're debating whether a debate should have a moderator. This is a, <laughs> a, a, a coach and his former debater going at it here, folks. This is pretty good. I like this. <laughs> James, I, I'm wondering if you think that um, that there ought to, there should be some kind of a renegotiation of the ground rules as we head into debate two in a couple of weeks between these uh, combatants, uh, President Trump and Joe Biden. Uh, what do you think about that? You know, uh, this is a tricky question I, because I, I love the tempting feature of turning off microphones, but the, it just seems like that would be a, a break of the bond of trust with the American people. You know, I don't want to speak in too many platitudes here, but it seems like there's an obvious issue where we'd be not giving the American people a full flavor of who the most powerful person in the land would be. 
And if they can really hear them speak in whatever capacity and they decide that's what they want, I think they have to be entitled to make that decision for better or worse. I think uh, a potentially good reframing of the rules would certainly be to lengthen the speaking time. Don't make it such a struggle to get in a word. In the end, when you have a debate, you really end up only getting three points that people end up taking home. You, you spend 90 minutes talking about a bunch of things, and folks end up only remembering a couple highlights. And when you look it up online, that's what gets shown, just a couple highlights. We should give people more time to talk about things, and I think that would help to diminish the highly competitive atmosphere for just a second of time because it's priced so valuably on the debate stage when you have 30 seconds to speak. Yeah, that that is a pretty – those are pretty tight time blocks. And uh, Dave Kelly, what do you think uh, should I – mean, I think it sounds like you were telling me earlier you think the time blocks should be longer, but should there be uh, sort of a renegotiation in between, you know, in the midst of this what I think a lot of people thought was a sort of a three-part set of debates here? I, I think there absolutely should. I don't think there will be, but I think there should be. Um, I was just thinking while James was talking, um, w- one of the things that, that I've done with my high school students is I've asked them to watch a, a movie called The Great Debaters starring Denzel Washington, and I think it communicates the flavor of what debate should really be about. Um, it, it should be about people who know their subjects, people who are passionate about their subjects, and, and people who can be inspiring about ideas. I mean, debate is the marketplace for ideas. And it's where we try to persuade and, and, uh, and, and communicate and help people understand why we feel so strongly about a particular issue. Um, they didn't do that last night. There yeah. was nothing inspiring. There was nothing in the way of leadership. Um, but, but, um, I mean, you can read great debates. You can read the, the records of British Parliament before World War II. Mm-hmm. You can read the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Quite frankly, I think Kennedy and Nixon uh, conducted themselves well in their debate. Um, they had the same format. I don't like the format. I think it needs to change. Um, but we could do so much better. Let's go to a couple of listeners here. I think we got uh, Marsha from Barry on the phone. Good morning, Marsha. Morning, morning, Dave, and morning to to your guests. Too little time, too much to say, so I'll be brief. What about a whistle or a bell, like in a prize fight? That's what I kept on screaming. Blow a whistle, time, time, time out. Yeah, uh, you got you, you, uh, maybe maybe put Chris Wallace in a striped shirt like a referee or something. Uh, <laughs> Just a whistle. I kept on screaming. Jeez. Interesting oh, suggestion, Marsha. Yeah, all right. Okay. Well, i, I got to get in a couple other callers in here, too. So uh, thank you very much, Marsha. Excellent suggestion. Uh, Bill in Waitsfield, what's on your mind? <clears throat> well, uh, I didn't watch it because it started at my bedtime. Ah. And I, I figured it was going to be a train wreck anyway. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I wasn't disappointed. I got, you know, I got up this morning, and since well, around 5 o'clock, I've been listening to the you know, playbacks and uh, other things there, and uh, you know, it's uh, you know, that the, that you know, it's, it's perfectly it, you know, it's something you expect of Trump. It's it's he's never had a debate. He bullies, he ridicules, um, you know. And as far as rules go, you mentioned changing rules, Dave. Uh, it, it doesn't matter because he wouldn't keep them. You know, he's he's he breaks rules, and uh- he, you know, and he he wants to dominate. He wants to browbeat. He does, you know, and yeah, you know, I, I suspect. You know, I've heard the playbacks of uh, 
you know, of Biden's uh, kind of losing it there. But, uh, you know, uh, but you can only push people so far. And I, I doubt if that's something that his team encouraged him to do because, you know, because it did make him, um, you know, it sounded like a moment of weakness. And, um, and the thing is that, you know, Trump just wants you to look weak anyway. And, um, yeah. So you right. know, I, I I don't I just don't I do not think debates even rel- what you know anything's better than what this one was, but you know even you know you know in recent years they're really they're really not debates you know they're 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 a series of of gotcha sound bites. Yeah. Hey, Bill, I got to move along, but thanks for the call. Uh, good observations. Uh, let's go to Paul in Moncton. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. Hey, uh, my, my thoughts are this. I don't understand why we don't allow, say, Donald Trump to pick a moderator to ask questions of Joe Biden, and why Joe Biden doesn't get to pick a moderator to ask questions of uh, Donald Trump. And that way you take the two out of going, you know, the two candidates out of going back and forth. Because to be honest with you, other than a few famous lines like from Reagan and one from uh, JFK and others during debates, none of it, the interaction actually means anything to me. I want to hear them answer the questions from what would possibly be a hostile moderator who would be respectful and decent, but correctly pressing them for answers as opposed to canned answers. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. I'm not sure it would take care of the problem of just interrupting in the middle of the other guy's answer. That's the that's a lot of what was happening. Well, well if you had the two candidates separate of each other, or even you know maybe not next to each other in the yeah. room, because I don't I don't care if one's taller than the other. I don't care if one's better looking than the other. All that stuff means nothing to me. I'd rather just hear the actual answers without interruptions, if that's possible. All right, Paul. Thank you for the call. Uh, let's uh, see if we can sneak in one more. Is it Mark from Jericho? Hey, how you doing? Good. What's on your mind? I- I think they should just shut their mics off after the question, after they try to answer the question. That's uh, that, that, that's a thought that I've seen a lot online in, in, in this morning. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, our, our guests, uh, I think, think that would be kind of a shocking move. But, um, did I, do I have that right, Dave Kelly? Well, sure. To shut off the mic of someone who might be president of the United States. Yeah. Uh, and, and James, I think you sort of, you pretty much agreed with that, right? It would be just too weird. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it would be hey. too weird, but something, what Marcia said earlier about having a bell is something we experience in college debate. Everyone in the room slaps their hands on the table when the time is up. And it All right. Is, you can keep talking. Speaking of time work. being up, I hate to do this, but I'm slapping my hand on the table. Thank you so <laughs> much, gentlemen. Uh, James Tedesco, Thank Dave you. Kelly, excellent conversation. Let's go to the bottom of the hour break for some CBS News. We'll be back, folks. Are you itching to get out, explore our great state? Don your mask and come to the Warren store in the beautiful Mad River Valley. The store is open to a limited number of customers upstairs and down. Dilly takeout by phone or window, but you can finally choose beer, wine, chips, etc. No appointment needed upstairs. Well stocked with cool summer clothing, cards, candles, bags, and jewelry, puzzles and toys for all ages, art supplies, books, and interactive learning games. Are your kids bored and driving you crazy? Bring them to the Warren store. Practicing all safe protocols. Masks required. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. Thanks for staying with us into the second half hour of our program on this uh, Wednesday morning, September 30th, 2020. And uh, we're going to be talking with uh, Haley Hooks, who's a pharmacist at Kinney Drugs. Uh, and uh, we're, we're going to be uh, talking about the flu shot. It is uh, flu season is coming, and uh, we are uh, a lot of folks are being urged to get their flu shots. And 
And we're going to hear all about that in the upcoming segment here on the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. I believe we have uh, Ms. Hooks on the phone with us. And uh, good morning, Haley. Thanks for joining me. Good morning, Dave. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, super elated to talk about uh, the flu vaccine today. And uh, I'm trying to recall, you are uh, you were a kidney pharmacist uh, somewhere in Chittenden County, right? Uh, yes, sir. I work uh, at Kidney Drugs in Essex Junction. Got it. Okay, I think, I, and, I, and I think you have been on the on the show here with me at least once before, if I do recall. I think I have, yes, sir, with uh, a topic of CBD. <laughs> I, yep, I remember that, and uh, interesting conversation there uh, on the on the flu vaccine. I see um, that uh, you know it's it's already it's already the season here, um, and a lot of people have questions sort of overlapping the flu. Uh, season and the flu shots with all the concern, understandable concern about the COVID-19 virus. And uh, so let me get right to a couple of the questions that I'm, I'm hearing as I talk to people about about all this. Uh, one, one that's come up is it, if COVID is still spreading, is it safe to get a flu shot? Yes, uh, there is very, very specific guidelines from the CDC on enhanced infection control measures that are in place, and kidney pharmacies in general and pharmacists are certainly practicing those protocols to make sure that that vaccination process remains safe for all individuals. And is there a particular, are there particular reasons that during a pandemic like this it's even more important than usual? Well, uh, like I said before, it's always important, uh, in my opinion, to get your flu shot for sure. But here it is. We're really trying to eliminate the likelihood of you getting the influenza or the flu. Mm-hmm. And by giving the flu vaccination, and we're hoping that you are less likely to get the flu, obviously, and then it conserves, or we're trying to conserve healthcare resources, really, is what it comes down to. Saying you keeping out of crowded medical settings, not being within populations that may be heavy with COVID activity, we don't want you to get acute respiratory illness and, and be having to go see healthcare providers. Uh, and also, you know, in that, when you're protecting yourself, you're also protecting other people. So if you're not getting it, you're not sharing it to loved ones and people in the community and really anyone in the public at large. So it's it's really important. I think I think the push this year has been a little different, and I think the idea behind getting it a little early was to aim to vaccinate, for we could so we could keep people out of harm's way and do it in a safe manner as well. I have a friend who unfortunately has cancer and is going through chemo right now. I'm wondering, is it safe for her to uh, get a flu shot? Yes, it is very important still for these folks to be protected. But this population, I would encourage to always just check in with their providers, the cancer care team in general, on getting that green light to get the flu shot, the vaccination. I think timing of the vaccine is really important uh, for these folks in regards to their other therapies as well. And, and the, um, my doctor actually told me, uh, just recently, I, I asked about the flu shot. I had a, I had my annual physical just a little over a week ago. And I said, so am I going to get my flu shot today? And the doc said, we should wait until late October on that because we want to la- we want it to last all the way through the, the height of the flu season. Uh, any reason for anybody to wait out there? So 
you know, here's the thing. The timing of the onset and the peak and the decline of influenza activity varies. The, the ideal time really can't be predicted. Um, we've certainly seen outbreaks in the past in October, but obviously a majority have been in the later season, in January, February, so to speak. Again, our aim has always been to vaccinate by the end of October. I think that's a really good uh, target uh, months to kind of aim to have everyone vaccinated. But the effort to get everyone in a little earlier this year was just because we knew that there was uh, basically a lull in COVID activity and it would provide a safe manner for us to then vaccinate folks a little earlier. And the waning, what you're talking about is when you delay vaccination, you know, there's a theory that it could be advantageous to a greater immunity later on in the season. But what we know is that it still, you know, carries you through from late fall to early spring, covering you for the entire flu season. And so that is really not a concern at this point to look down the road and say, I didn't, you know, I'm waiting later to get it because the missed opportunity of you getting the vaccination is more important at this point in my eyes. Uh, if I'm sick with a cold and fever already, uh, do I, do I want to wait to get the flu shot though until I'm feeling better? Yeah, you know, when given uh, the flu shot, your body mounts a response to what is given, and obviously it's a better response when you are healthy. So we do tell folks that we'd like them to wait until they're feeling uh, better before they get the vaccination. Also, this year, which is uh, complicating this, it's not really complicating, but obviously it's adding another uh, level, level to this, is the screening process for folks that are coming in and not feeling well you know, we unfortunately uh, see an overlap in COVID-19 symptoms and other types of viruses, too. So just important, I think, overall for you to feel well to come in to get your flu vaccine, yes. And you could have a situation where you get the, you get the vaccine and you go home and you, uh, if you're still basically sick, you then spike a fever. You wouldn't know whether you're your fever yeah. is a result of your your sort of pre-existing or underli- underlying illness and your uh, and the and the uh, and a reaction to the vaccine, correct? There, it's a very very good point to bring up because I think we've had some circumstances where folks have actually tried to get them on a Friday knowing that if they had some type of symptomology from the vaccine, they would really know that it was the vaccine and they could stay out of work for a period of time after that. So, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, absolutely. These are things to all think about. Um, we do see when we give the vaccine, we do see responses like that happen for sure. Mm-hmm. And they're mild. They're always mild and they're very short lasting, but those side effects can happen. Now, remember, please remember, you cannot get the flu from the flu vaccine by any means, but it can certainly bring upon those types of symptoms. Yeah, my guest is Haley Hook. She's a pharmacist at the uh, Kidney Drugs uh, in uh, Essex Junction. And we're talking about the uh, flu shot and the campaign that Kidney Drugs and others have launched uh, to try to urge people to get their flu shots. Uh, a lot of the, uh, a lot of places are offering flu shots right now, and uh, you're you are encouraged to uh, get get that taken care of uh, sometime this uh, 
this month, or uh, actually today's the 30th of September, so there's not much of this month left, but uh, certainly during the month of October, it should be a goal for everyone out there uh, to get the get the flu shot. If you'd like to call and uh, ask any questions or bring any comments you'd like Ms. Hooks to hear, uh, you are more than welcome to check in with us here on the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. Our phone numbers are 244-1777. That's the local number in Waterbury, or the toll-free number is one eight seven seven two nine one. 8255 or 291 talk. And, uh, Haley, uh, I know that the flu shot tends to be sort of reformulated and tweaked every year in response to the strains of flu that are, that are going around. Uh, are, uh, are there big changes in this year's flu shot? Yes. Um, you know, from season to season, we do see uh, mutations happen with this particular virus or the virus in general. So, we try to obviously create a vaccine that mimics it as best as we can by predicting what those strains are going to be. And this year's season in particular includes two updates, or includes updates rather on two particular strains. And additionally to that, um, we also have two other vaccines that were relicensed, if you will, for those individuals age 65 and older. So we do have a few changes out there, yes. I think so it previous... Pre- we got it right. <laughs> yeah, huh? In previous uh, conversations I've had about uh, the flu vaccine and, and the flu season in general, uh, I seem to remember that people keep an eye on Australia because Australia, of course, is is an opposite climate to ours. They are they are in, in spring right now while we're in autumn and they're heading into summer and et cetera. And uh, um, and so. Do we do we t- generally regard Australia as trailing us and uh, or as preceding us in sort of how a flu season will go? It's preceding, and Brisbane is the place where they determine really what is going to happen for the rest of the season. So yeah, it's trans. I think it's Translatio Studi. We call it. <laughs> hmm, okay. Yes, right. Uh, so yes, it starts and. Uh, is then uh, hopefully targeted right to then get to us, and we have a successful and efficacious vaccine that is uh, available to us over here in the Western Hemisphere. So what is the news from the land down under? Did they have a tough flu season, or did they were they able to uh, get by pretty, uh, pretty well this year? You know, I, I wish I had that information, but I actually don't. I have not seen numbers. I have not seen a lot of particulars on what they had going on or if it's actually been in, in a good, you know, they've been in a good position. So unfortunately I don't have that information, but um, I'm sure we'll see that surface at some point. I've heard speculation that our flu season this year could be, um, you know, less severe than than has been the case in years past because so many people are going around with masks and main, maintaining <laughs> social distancing and staying out of crowds and all the rest all right, of this stuff. You know. You know, I think, you know, these practices, these these very general practices of not shaking hands and wearing a mask, frequently washing your hands and, and such, absolutely. I think we could only think of this as a positive note to help prevent the vaccine or the, the actual influenza, for sure. And we also have a vaccination, too. So mm-hmm. here are things working for us, right? And so I definitely feel that we need to take as much, uh, you know, in the benefit of what's being offered. We have a vaccine, and then we have all these other uh, protective-type things that we're doing. So, yes, let's hope it's a good one. But, you know, Dave, I was thinking this morning, and I, I just have to share it with you because I'm bound determined to rename this vaccine. I don't know if you heard the conversation with Lee and I yesterday, but <laughs> I don't really enjoy the name of this vaccine. 
because uh, it just sounds kind of weird to me. I'm giving you the flu shot. So, you know, oh, yeah, I did hear that. Yeah. Right? Yep. <laughs> so I was thinking about the fact that, you know, because of COVID, unfortunately, a number of folks have had to remain at home and spend a great deal of time on their computers and their phones, you know, and, they, and in order to remain safe and to protect them from hackers and, and whatnot, they've had to install virus protection software. Oh. <laughs> so this, this term, I'm like, this term made me chuckle because I was like, wait a minute, this is precisely what we're encouraging folks to do to protect their bodies. <laughs> Come on in for your virus protection software. <laughs> My virus protection update. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, right. So anyways, that was my side note. I just had to share that with you because I thought it was kind of funny. So is my computer screen going to start flashing that I need to update when I'm in the middle and annoy me when I'm in the middle of trying to do something else? Every year you'll have to update for sure, Dave. (laughs) Yes, that's for sure. Once yearly you get a flu vaccine. Yeah, that's, uh, that is, I mean, it it is, it is interesting how terminology can really, um, You know, I, I, I don't really want a flu shot. I, I, I think I heard you say anti-flu, anti-flu shot yesterday. Yeah. I mean, I might take a whiskey shot at some point. But Whatever one you have, I'll take. Yeah. Give me a whiskey shot before you give me a flu shot. Is what I, although not this early in the day. I use a square needle that you have to have that. Yeah, there we go. Uh, that's the, uh, the, uh, the, the flu shot, I mean, all sorts of speculation you see online and stuff, and I mean, uh, you got to shoot this one down. The flu shot does not make anyone more at risk, does it, for getting the COVID-19? Oh, no. No, sir, it does not. I think uh, in our attempt to give you the vaccine, like I said before, we're trying to reduce acute respiratory illness in the communities and the healthcare system. So I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that flu shots can strengthen your immunity, keep you out of, like I said before, those crowded medical settings and populations that could potentially be heavy with COVID. So I think indirectly, I'm going to say that it could potentially keep you out of harm's way of COVID. So it does not increase your risk, absolutely not. Uh, and I would, you know, I'd fight that for, for sure. Like, you can only, the, the more healthy you are, the less apt you're having to go in to see your doctor or you're going to have to go someplace for treatment or whatnot, and that can only be advantageous. Stay out of those healthcare settings for yeah, sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, what if I'm allergic to eggs? Eggs. Uh, tell me about the connection of eggs and flu sh- and, the, and this uh, flu vaccine, and uh, uh, and why anybody should be uh, careful about that. Yeah. So um, there definitely have we have a population of folks that have egg allergies or an egg allergy, I should say. <laughs> And uh, vaccines, that, or this particular vaccine, is made in uh, embryonated eggs, and so therefore it has trace amounts of egg protein. So folks with egg allergies have to be very, very careful about getting a certain vaccine. And as long as you just make sure you relay this information to your pharmacist or any pharmacist or anyone else who's giving you your vaccine, uh, we can definitely accommodate uh, with giving another vaccine that does not have uh, trace amounts of egg protein. All right. Well, when we start talking about egg protein, my mind starts to scramble. I gotta say, uh, <laughs> and, and I want this to go over easy. Now, you know, rim shot, please. Yeah. <laughs> if I get a flu shot earlier, uh, it will cover me through the season. I mean, that's the that's one question that I think has come up too. Yeah, you know, they say six to twelve months is what you're covered for. For sure, you know, there will be a waning of that uh, immune response later on in the in the season. You know, but 
As far as getting, this is prime time right now to get your vaccine done October. They're saying at the end of October by Halloween, so don't get haunted by the flu. Make sure you get it by Halloween, Halloween. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it will hold you. It will definitely hold you to the, the end of the season. Mm-hmm. And if you got it, you know, I'm, I think what they're talking about, Dave, is if you were to get a vaccine in June or July or even maybe at the beginning of August, then there could be uh, where you see a little bit of waning of that, you know, immunity towards the end of, of the particular flu vaccine or flu season, rather, not flu vaccine, but flu season. Well, these, um, I guess this is a pretty uh, broadly available and broadly advised vaccine. For instance, uh, I think I read that anybody six months or older is eligible to get it, and that there aren't any there aren't any real uh, uh, priority lists going on. It's not like we are we're all saying you know people over sixty five should be first in line or anything like that. Oh no, no, no. We don't we don't prioritize. We are trying to get everyone vaccinated. You're absolutely right. From six months of age upward. Uh, there's a doubt that, uh, you know, we make efforts to do clinics so that folks uh, of, you know, certain areas are, this is available to them uh, because, you know, going to get the vaccine is hard for some folks. So we, like I said, we do clinics to help provide those people that are lock-ins to get their vaccinations and whatnot. But there's no priority now, absolutely not, to specific groups of people. And if, uh, if, if, conversely, if, uh, people with certain conditions, I'm wondering who's on the list for people who might want to think twice or talk with their doctor first before getting the vaccine. Maybe somebody with a severe egg allergy or who's had, uh, I think I read, uh, uh, is it Julian Barre syndrome? Uh, uh yep. Mm-hmm. those folks are, ought to be, uh, sort of double checking with, uh, their providers before they get the vaccine. Is that right? I, I think so. I think you could definitely talk with your doctor or your pharmacist before getting uh, a particular flu shot, for sure. Just run by uh, them, you know, what's going on, and they can certainly accommodate with a particular vaccine if needed or maybe even deter you from getting one without speaking to your provider, for sure, yes. So can I just stop in, or do I make an appointment if I want to? I mean, let's say I, 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 now I'm talking about this, and I go, yeah. all right, on the way home from work today, from on the way home I'm going to stop at the Kinney, and I, I live in Montpelier, so I can stop at the Kinney store right in the center of town there and get my flu shot. Um, uh, do I call ahead? Do I go online and make an appointment? What do I do? Yeah, you absolutely can walk right in. You do not need an appointment to get your flu shot. Uh, they are, we are ready to go whenever you get in and fill out your appropriate forms. However, if making an appointment is better for you, then you can certainly do that online through kidneydrugs.com, of course. And, uh, yeah, there's many ways, but yes, it's very widely available. And I'm going to say, you know, I am extremely honored and I don't think this is, um, something that you hear a lot, but as a pharmacist, I'm extremely honored to have, to be in a position where I can make this so accessible for folks. I literally, Dave, have folks that come in at 7.30 at night and say, can I get a flu shot? I'm like, yeah, of course you can. So Hmm. it's a beautiful thing. It should not be something that is hard to obtain. It should not be something that is going to, uh, you know, need you to reinitiate your day or, or, you know, or restart your day or like, you know, change what you're doing schedule-wise to get it. It should be something that's very easy to get, and I'm I'm certainly very proud to say that um, I'm happy to be part of that team that can do it. 
Now you do, now you have to do is let people vote at the same time. You kill two two errands with one. I don't know how you'd work that with your local town or city clerk. But anyway, um, Haley, uh, you know, one issue with this pandemic going on, a lot of people have lost their jobs. Uh, you know, the economy's really been been in a, in a rough place this year. Uh, you lose your job, you usually lose your health insurance. So you might be seeing a, an unusually high number of people coming into your store uh, this season uh, looking for flu shots, and they don't have insurance. What are they going to pay out of pocket? Yeah, unfortunately, this scenario is uh, not necessarily a good one for sure in light of uh, the circumstances from the pandemic. The cost of the shot, if someone is uninsured or underinsured, rather, they range anywhere from like $38 to $72 out of pocket, depending on the type of flu vaccination it is. Hmm. Uh, does that vary as to whether it's the egg-based one or one of the alternatives for people with egg allergies and that kind of thing? or? Uh, yeah, primarily they range with um, as far as like the actual concentration of dose. So we have regular flu shots, and then we have flu shots that are available for folks over the age of 65. Those happen to be a little more pricey. I see. Um, but, yeah. Huh. Um, and in terms of the, its effect on people around you, if I'm if I'm going to be a new grandparent, should I get my flu shot? Uh, oh well, yes, because we can't vaccinate, um, you know, before the age of six months. Getting vaccinated yourself is obviously going to help prevent any type of illness in babies and young children for sure, uh, and especially if you're a new grandparent. Absolutely, you need to you need to definitely protect those around you, and that's that's part of this whole process. And, 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 also, and don't forget, and this is just a side note, but the pertussis vaccine is also important to protect young babies, and that's the uh, vaccination for whooping cough. Yeah, and you can can you get that at the same time you're coming in for your flu shot? You can actually, which is a great question because a lot of folks want to get a couple different vaccinations when they're in. The flu shot is an inactive virus, and so it can be co-administered with other inactivated viruses or live viruses mm-hmm. as long as they are administered in different arms. So we would give one vaccine on, in one arm and the other in the other. So, yeah. Got it. Well, Haley, you, you've been a real uh, excellent source of information this morning. I'm sure there's more to say on this, but we <laughs> unfortunately are out of time. And uh, uh, do, uh, do do stay in touch. If there's more to share, we'll uh, get you back on the air. Thanks Thank very much for joining me this morning. Haley Hooks of uh, Kinney Drugs. Uh, hey, that's about uh, it for this hour. Let's go to a CBS News uh, break at the top of the hour and more, to, more of the Dave Graham Show to follow. Itching to get out, explore our great state? Don your mask and come to the Warren store in the beautiful Mad River Valley. The store is open to a limited number of customers upstairs and down. Dilly takeout by phone or window, but you can finally choose beer, wine, chips, etc. No appointment needed upstairs. Well stocked with cool summer clothing, cards, candles, bags, and jewelry, puzzles and toys for all ages, art supplies, books, and interactive learning games. Are your kids bored and driving you crazy? Bring them to the Warren store. Practicing all safe protocols. Masks required. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV FM and AM. We are back. Uh, thanks for staying with us into the second hour of our program this morning. And uh, 
want to introduce my next guest, who is uh, Peter Mayer. He's uh, with CBS News and uh, watched the debate for sure last night. And wow, what a show. Peter, what would you think? Well, Dave, look, uh, I guess all the words have been used up by now, a little after 10 o'clock. Train wreck, cringeworthy, dumpster fire, chaos, uh, (laughs) you know, but all all of that aside, uh, I think the American people deserve better than what we saw last night. I don't think there was anything that was said or done to change the dynamic of this presidential race. Yeah, I, I suspect you're right about that, and 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 I mean, I, I I don't think there's really any any movement in the in the polls from what I've seen, just looking at uh, news online and so on this morning. Uh, I mean, are you picking up anything different on those on those fronts? You know, it was remarkable right after the debate, uh, the, the really fine people at uh, the CBS polling, CBS News polling, uh, did a, a snap debate of debate, a snap poll of debate watchers, I should say, and the findings uh, startlingly mirror the national polling average. 48% thought Biden won and 41% chose Trump. It, it's almost the same. Uh, 10% called it a draw, Dave, but I think the other, these other two numbers are the ones that caught my attention. 69% found it to be annoying. I'll lump myself in with them. And, uh, 17% said they were informed. I'm not sure what they were informed about. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I, and, uh, you know, a, a couple of commentators I've seen online just are, are talking about things like, do we need to, um, Maybe mute the microphones in between somebody's turn to speak or something. Uh, what would you make of that? And, and is that just almost too, um, I don't know, it, it's, it sets a bar of, of expected childish behavior or something? Yeah. Well, these debates are run by the Presidential Debate Commission. Fine organization, nonpartisan. They've got Democrats and Republicans evenly uh, divided on their, I'm not sure if you'd call it their board, but their, their guidance team. Um, I, you know, it, I don't know that you can put a mute button in effect. That that seems to be pretty arbitrary. Uh, let the public mute out what they, they want to when they watch these things, and there are going to be two more. A lot of people in the Biden, you know, the Biden universe said uh, he shouldn't do any more after what happened last night. You know, uh, Trump interrupted him by our count 73 times. Wow. Sometimes it seemed like Trump was interrupting himself. Uh but um, the Biden people, uh, they say they're going forward. They're ready for more debates. Yeah. Uh, he did accomplish one thing last night, uh, Joe Biden. You know, Donald Trump lowered expectations for him for weeks. He's been calling him Sleepy Joe and saying that he doesn't have the mental capacity and that he's going to wear an earpiece and get the uh, answers fed to him and that he's going to use a teleprompter. Well, the public could see last night. Uh, that uh, that Joe Biden, uh, you know, was sharp by Trump standards and and by the standards of a lot of other people too. He he did not come across as someone who uh, you know was a nutcase. Yeah, and and he and he did not come come across as someone who was uh, you know having any difficulty sort of following the flow and just kind of keeping up with. Uh, you know, the, to the extent any, any real exchange happened, it seemed like, you know, Biden was, was fully, uh, in, in control of his faculties and, and uh, all of this stuff about how he's, uh, you know, getting senile or, or something is, didn't, didn't, didn't show up last night. Or what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I think he did miss one opportunity, one, you know, at least one opportunity, and that was on this hot button tax issue. 
uh, you know, the, the, the New York Times disclosures about Donald Trump paying $750 in taxes. Chris Wallace, the moderator, uh, challenged him on that. And, uh, you know, Trump uh, denied the New York Times report. He claimed that he'd paid millions, but, you know, was that taxes on his business? We still don't know about his personal income taxes. Every president uh, in modern times, uh, you know, going back to, well, since Richard Nixon, as you well know, they've released their, their tax returns. I believe that Senator Sanders released his, his returns during the, the primary campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, getting back to the missed opportunities, uh, Biden was able to challenge him to show us your tax returns, uh, but he forgot that yesterday he had posted his own tax returns, including his latest online on, on his website, and he's released his returns all the years that he's been in public life. And he didn't mention that, and I think that that was a, a missed opportunity to tell the millions of debate watchers and, and listeners that uh, his returns uh, were public. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a, that is a, a a pretty key distinction, and one one you you would think he would have uh, played up, you know. Yeah, you know, the campaign made a big deal about it yesterday, and and I thought, well, you know, he's he's going to be able to cut into Trump on on that issue by saying, here are my taxes, where are yours? But uh, he didn't. Yeah, well, um, perhaps uh, there's some follow up to be done there. I don't know, but yeah, wow. Yeah, I mean, uh, Kamala Harris will probably bat clean up on a lot of things. Uh, next week at the vice presidential debate, and uh, as will Mike Pence for the Trump side. Sure, yep. Well, um, Mr. Meyer, uh, Mr. Mayor, I, I, <laughs> I really appreciate you joining me this morning, and uh, your uh, your insights are always valued. And uh, thank you so much for for coming on our air this morning. Well, thank you, and thanks for all of you and, and everybody else at the station do for Vermont. I know you're you're a very important. Uh, communications link for the entire state so thanks we certainly try thanks again all righty take care my next guest is the medical director at the people's health and wellness clinic in barry dr alan ramsey also has been a member of the green mountain care board and as someone who's very, been very involved in health care policy in vermont and uh, he joins us this morning to talk about uh, how things are going at the at the clinic there in barry uh, during the covid pandemic and uh, how the folks the clinic uh, the clinic is serving are faring also during these tough times. And uh, Dr. Ramsey, thanks very much for, for joining me this morning. Uh, well, thank you, Dave, for having me. Uh, good to be here again. We spoke about, uh, I guess, three months ago around this topic, and and I think it's a good time to have an update. Yeah. So give us the, give us an update, at least for for starters here. Um, what is your sense, and how how are things going for, particularly for the for the uh, uninsured population you're targeting there at the People's Health and Wellness Clinic, and, uh, uh, and have, it, have things improved at all, or where, where are we right now? Okay. Well, let, let's, let's talk about who, who, the, who the, this uh, group of people actually is. So when we did our, our last um, statewide health survey, which was the last year, uh, we had an uninsured rate that varied between 3 and 5%. And we had an underinsured rate that was closer to 30 to 35%. These were people that actually had a low-value insurance plan that because of the copay and deductible expense, they were reluctant to actually use it. So those were the numbers before the pandemic. 
Now, in the last uh, six months, uh, our reporting is that we now have 7% of working-age Vermonters who are uninsured. So there has been basically a doubling of the uninsured population in Vermont during the pandemic. So those are the numbers. Now, in terms of my own, our own personal experience at the People's Health and Wellness Clinic, where we rely on volunteer clinicians, we have been providing primarily telephone and telemedicine visits uh, since uh, mid-March. We've been able to continue that in a very active way until many of our uh, clinics during the week so that we can provide care to to this uh, population. The other thing we took on uh, mid-March and into April was to provide more health-related oversight to the homeless population in central Vermont. So those were the two, those were two things that evolved from the People's Clinic. Now, we, we knew right from the start that our current facility on Main Street was, was not going to be adequate or safe for volunteer clinicians to see patients. The rooms were small, they weren't ventilated, the hallway was very narrow, it was a, it's an old renovated house. Mm-hmm. So, so we took on the task of finding a, another clinic site, which we have established over the last eight weeks in, in, in the Blanchard building in downtown Barrie on the fourth floor. Hmm. It, 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 is a, it was for prim, formerly a primary care pra- and dermatology practice that Central Vermont Medical Center was not using, and they allowed us to move in. Uh, they are still responsible for the lease until December. It's not. It's a very nice facility, wide rooms, windows, several, I mean, wide hallways, uh, several exam rooms, uh, but it's not a facility that we could afford uh, to stay in, but we are moving in and uh, will open for patient visits uh, sometime in the next two weeks. It's a very slow process. You get moved, you get, you do walkthroughs. Um, remember, Dave, when you rely on volunteers, you want to reduce their risk as much as possible. You want to have personal protective equipment. You want to have well-ventilated big rooms. You want to walk through so that you limit exposure for people who are potentially asymptomatic coronavirus carriers. So we have to take steps, I think, that many other clinics don't necessarily have to take just because we rely so much on volunteers. So that's where we're at. We hope to have inpatient, I mean, in-person visits soon. I can't come up with a specific date. I did a walkthrough last week and role-played on being both a patient and a clinician, we will always we will continue to do telemedicine visits even when we're doing in-person visits. Yeah, that's that's interesting. What, tell me a little bit about your experience with telemedicine because uh, obviously yours is not the only healthcare setting in which that has become a much bigger thing since the advent of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, many, many uh, physicians' practices and, and uh, providers are, are, are using this now. Um, from the perspective of a provider, uh, what are its advantages and what are its shortcomings? Well, advantages certainly are that um, it's convenient. It, you know, when 
I don't know when you made your last uh, doctor visit, but typically you, you, you need to set aside at least three hours. I mean, between the travel in, the potential wait, the visit, the travel out, I mean, it it can carve a big chunk of time out of your day. Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas telemedicine actually is convenient for both the patient and the clinician in a lot of ways. Um, and so there's a convenience factor, there's a cost factor, you know, you don't have the overhead um, that um, a typical practice would have uh, for seeing in all in-person visits. Um, there's the connectivity, meaning you are able to, when you have a good signal, you're able to see a patient, you're able to actually almost be like a home visit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, uh, and so uh, those are the, I think, advantages. Those are the things that um, are going to be sustained. They're not going to go away. Uh, there's a safety factor. So you're really not exposing yourself or your patient to um, risk of, of a virus, of being uh, exposed to the virus. So, so those are the, um, there's, there's clearly advantages. And I don't think even after the pandemic uh, is brought under control that telemedicine is going to go away. Um, it is just, it just has advantages. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there will be a debate about how it's paid for. I think it will, particularly in Vermont, it should accelerate the debate about broadband access throughout the state. That's one of the technical issues, you know, oh, so, so let's get into the problems. Yeah. Um, okay. There, there are the technical issues. In other words, uh, you know, about a third of the time when I'm doing a telemedicine visit with a person that is using a, a smartphone, uh, something will happen with the video um, aspect because of weak uh, connection, and we convert it to from a telemedicine to a telephone call. Um, and, and that all has to do with the... Um, uh, you know the strength of this of the broadband signal, and and we know there are gaps in even outside in Washington, Northern Orange County, yeah. there are gaps. Yep. So um, so there's the technical side, um, as well as the fact that you know people are get nervous about accessing a, a you know a, a telemedicine visit, a, the, particularly the first couple times they do it. You know, you log into this site. We use a a platform called doxy.me, D-O-X-Y dot M-E. We ask them to go to that site, and they end up in our waiting room, virtual waiting room, and then we invite them in. Right. So there are some, there are some of those steps that can confuse people when they're first doing it. So so those are the technical side. Those are the technical issues. I've tended to keep kind of a, you know, a semi-accurate list of the times that I do a telemedicine visit where I wish that I could, you know, expand the visit with an actual exam. Mm-hmm. Uh, abdominal pain, I wish I could examine the abdomen. Shortness of breath uh, or cough, I wish I could take a, a listen to the lungs. Uh, sore throat, you know, earache. Um, 
So there are those limitations where you really would feel better about the visit when you could actually make personal contact. Um, so, um, and that happens, I would say about 20% of the visits that I do, just as a guess, I, would, I wish that I could actually do, a, do an in-person examination. So one out of five. Um, wow, I, I might have even expected it would be higher because I mean, it's, I know. so many times yeah. I think about a visit to the doctor, and the doctor really is, uh, you know, putting hands on basically, and and uh, uh, and and is um, and and there's a lot of stuff going on in that appointment that is beyond what you can what you can do right. on a Zoom call or anything like that. Well, remember, Dave, we also screen people pretty carefully about who who would. Uh, benefit from a telemedicine visit versus who should go to the urgent care center. Yeah, that's true. So we do a lot of screening there. We, If somebody's got a fever and shortness of breath and cough, I mean, we're going to send them to the urgent care center because they, they're going to need a COVID test as well as an exam. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, we do that screening, so that limits it. Now, the other thing that keeps the number down is that, you know, people, uh, um, how you train them to do their own self-monitoring at home. So um, blood pressure, okay, go to Walmart, you know, go to CVS, go to Amazon, and get your home blood pressure kit so you're checking it yourself at home. And and then keep a, keep a record. Here are your targets, keep a record. So we're kind of pushing that. And, you know, we've been doing that with diabetes forever. Mm-hmm. But now, now we're pushing it with other things like, um, uh, you know, like blood pressure. You know, monitoring. Um, so, um, so that's those are some of the things that uh, come to mind uh, about it. I, um, I don't. You know, I've, it's you know, Dave. I've been practicing for forty years, and if you'd asked me last year <laughs> if I, if you just said, Alan, you know, a year from now, you're going to be focused on telemedicine visits and you had a very limited actual contact with your patient, I would have said, you're crazy. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I just couldn't have imagined what yeah. was happening. So and, and a lot of my colleagues feel the same way. But we adjust, uh, we grow, we add skill, and we do the best we can. That's what you have to do. I mean, and certainly many, many people in many, many walks of life have tried to figure out new ways of doing things uh, in the COVID-19 crisis here. Um, and, you know, I sometimes wonder, and I'll ask you this question because I think it really goes to the nub of uh, what we're talking about here. Long term, how do you think healthcare is going to change as a result of the COVID-19 crisis? Do you think the changes overall will be an improvement? Will they be a, uh, whatever the opposite of improvement is, a disimprovement or yeah. something? Uh, what do you think? Well, you know that you're going to lead me back into my um, my thinking about healthcare policies in general. Um, you know, having spent five years on the Green Mountain Care Board, you know, and I, I feel like I have some expertise in this area that many of my colleagues don't. So you're going to lead me back into that now. <laughs> the, pan- the, the pandemic itself. Uh, I hope it will shine a light on the importance of public health and, um, you know, in our, in our Department of Health and what they can do to support us. And what they have done is amazing. What we have kept, what, the way we have been able to keep this pandemic 
under control is, uh, is I think, nothing sort of remarkable, and I just hope it can continue. Uh, hold on just a second. We, um... So, so anyway, uh, so that's one thing. I think we need to, this is, has, at least in Vermont, it has shined a light on, on how important public health is. Uh, uh, in terms of uh, how it will change, I, how the pandemic will change the views that we have about healthcare reform. We, you will, you know, you, I think I've said this to you before, but I, I publicly made the statement that we have three ways to control the growth in healthcare costs and maintain the quality of care that everybody deserves in Vermont. The first thing we have to do is cover everybody. There has been no other developed country in the world that has been able to control the growth in their health care costs without getting everybody in. Okay. Yep. Number two, number two, and, and we're not doing that right now. I just mentioned to you that our uninsured rate has doubled in the last six months as a result of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if that pushes us, our legislature, our administration, the Green Health Care Board, uh, our accountable care organization, our all-care model, all those things that are going on, that pushes us to look more carefully at whether we should focus on just the those people already have insurance, which we're doing now, or we should focus on getting everybody in. If the pandemic pushes us in that innovative direction, I'd be happy. The second thing, we will not control the growth in healthcare costs until we invest more in primary care, mental health, and community-based services. Okay. Invest more in those three areas. Yep. So there has to be little winners, and there will have to be little losers to make that happen. And, well, uh, when you talk about a financial, the, the way we finance healthcare. Yeah, you, we, should, we. I want to get. I want to find out more about wh- what you define uh, define little winners and little losers uh, on the other side of a break. We need to go to. At the bottom okay. of the hour here, a CBS Newsman, a couple words from our sponsors, Dr. Alan Ramsey, the medical director of the People's Health and Wellness Clinic at Barry, is my guest. And we'll talk more with the doctor just after this upcoming break here, folks. Uh, stay with us. Itching to get out, explore our great state? Don your mask and come to the Warren store in the beautiful Mad River Valley. The store is open to a limited number of customers upstairs and down. Dilly takeout by phone or window, but you can finally choose beer, wine, chips, etc. No appointment needed upstairs. Well stocked with cool summer clothing, cards, candles, bags, and jewelry, puzzles and toys for all ages, art supplies, books, and interactive learning games. Are your kids bored and driving you crazy? Bring them to the Warren store. Practicing all safe protocols. Masks required. It's the Dave Graham Show on WDEV. My guest is Dr. Alan Ramsey. He's medical director of the People's Health and Wellness Clinic in Barrie. They uh, take care of uh, uninsured Vermonters, and uh, it's, uh, it is a real uh, mission of mercy. They're performing uh, for folks in uh, 
who are frequently from marginalized populations in our in our uh, community. A little uh, bit of full disclosure for you: my uh, my wife, who's a registered nurse, uh, actually formerly uh, was uh, the nurse manager at the People's Health and Wellness Clinic. She's no longer working there now, but was there for several years and uh, found it to be a really rewarding uh, place to work and a and a wonderful organization with a lot of strong community support. And so uh, I just wanted to. Uh, Make that known in case anybody wanted to accuse me of uh, flogging something in which I'm personally involved. I know that uh, if those questions come up a lot about journalists because we all have our individual lives and connections with various things that go on in the world, and occasionally our, our, our coverage uh, gets close to them. So there we go. Anyway, uh, Dr. Ramsey, you were mentioning before the break that the um, – uh, there are little winners and little losers with the idea of trying to ensure everybody in Vermont. And uh, um, uh, elaborate on that. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, let me give you some examples. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a community-based service might be a community health team or a visiting nurse association who gets involved in uh, aggressive post acute hospital care for patients who are discharged, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, what that what that means is you're investing in that community service so that that patient is not readmitted a week later or a month later with the same problem because they didn't get their medication straight or they didn't get their follow-up straight. So Physical therapy and all that sort of thing, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Yep. And so you invest in that community service and you in that. And so you reduce the um, burden of admission, acute hospital care admissions on the hospital side. So the hospital adjusts. Now the hospital has to adjust in a timely way because they have fixed costs. So let's say their census drops from 90% or 70% to 50% because you're doing a really good job at, at post-acute care. The hospital is going to have to adjust its cost structure. Okay. Yep. This is what I learned in, in uh, you know, working on hospital budgets at the Green Mountain Care Board. Let me give you another example. So you increase access to primary care, you decrease emergency room visits. So emergency room visits are a revenue source for hospitals. They have to keep that emergency room open 24-7 with staff, whether or not they see 10 people or one person. So... The hospital's going to have to adjust its cost structure. So I, I don't know that maybe the losers is wrong, but innovation is the right term. You, you've got to be prepared to reduce fixed costs in an environment when you're expanding access to primary care. Another example, you expand access to primary care and you have, you, you prevent problems from, from chronic disease from getting worse. Diabetes, you keep your, you have a primary care team that keeps the diabetes under control, less transition to heart disease, kidney disease, uh, all the eye disease, all the problems that exist when diabetes is left uncontrolled. And so you have less demand for those specialty services. So you reduce the cost of care. So it, I don't know winners and losers, but I think creativeness and innovation is what has to happen. But I mentioned those two things. We've got to get everybody in. We've got to change how we pay so that we invest more in 
primary care, mental health, and community-based services. And the third thing that we all have to do as doctors, whether we're an orthopedic surgeon, a family doctor, or a neurologist, we focus on the best evidence available when we help our patients make decisions. Okay? Mm-hmm. Evidence-based medicine. So, right now, back surgery. I mean, we do an enormous amount of spine back surgery. We do an enormous number of MRIs on low back for people who come in with back pain. Mm-hmm. I mean, the evidence is that we don't really need to do that. We need to provide services to people who have back pain that gets them through the episode rather than just going directly to an MRI and to a back surgeon. And those services are things that typically are difficult to get paid for. You know, physical therapy, yep. uh, yoga, acupuncture, uh, type qigong, you know, all the things that have been evidence proven to help people with low back pain, but they are rarely in our treatment armament, uh, treatment options. So um, just some simple examples that, that I that I experienced. So three things. Get everybody in, which you're not doing. Change uh, where the money flows in a small way. It doesn't have to be a big way. I mean, right now, 8 to 10% of the, of a, of a, the dollar spent on health care in, in, in this state is goes to primary care. 8 to 10%. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, let's just incre- increase that to 12%. And 13%. 13 cents on the dollar. 13 cents on your insurance premium dollar is is not a big jump but it would make so much difference. Hmm. Let's uh let's uh see what our listeners are thinking out there. In fact, uh, 244-1777 is the local number here in Waterbury, the toll-free number 18772918255 or 291-talk and uh you're more than welcome to check in with us if you have a question you'd like to ask Dr. Alan Ramsey or uh, a comment you'd like him to hear. Uh, uh, join the conversation, uh, which is something that uh, Forbes from East Corinth is looking to do here. Good morning, Forbes. Good morning. How are you? Doing well. How are you? Great. Uh, kudos to the people that are involved in, in these clinics. Uh, I'm familiar with the one in Barry. Mm-hmm. And the, the amount of dedication to the people who make it happen, and also the professional people who, in many cases, donate their time out of their busy schedule to be able to help people. But it's an amazing thing, and I, I mean, I want to stop you there for a minute, Forrest, because, you know, you know I'm, as I mentioned, I'm familiar with, I'm especially familiar with the People's Health and Wellness Clinic because my wife used to work there. And, right. uh, and and watching people like Dr. Ramsey, who's been volunteering there for years, as well as other medical professionals uh, who, who uh, you're right, they work full-time, oftentimes more than full-time, and then they come by, uh, you know, periodically and donate some hours uh, for free to the uh, People's Health and Wellness Clinic and and it's uh, what a wonderful thing i just you know my hats off to the people who are willing and able to do that and uh so uh, but go ahead forbes i think you had another point you wanted to make the real essence is uh you take a minor situation with a person who doesn't uh, doesn't have the uh facilities to be able to pay for good uh, medical evaluation or help these these people would not seek help and their problems would compound and that compounds into everything from emergency rooms 
that uh, really possibly didn't need to take place, but it would put a heck of a tax on the entire medical system. Yeah. And uh, and Dr. Ramsey, I bet you you are sitting there thinking, well, that's the whole one of the big ideas here is to try to uh, try to intervene in that process of of somebody's you know worsening health condition, get them early, uh, and and obviously there's a there's a, a savings in, in terms of pain and suffering and and uh, sometimes just uh, ill health and death, and there's also a big financial savings too. Yeah, thank you for those comments, Forbes. Uh, we we appreciate it. You're right. We do um, rely on volunteers. Um, many of our volunteers are highly, all of them are highly skilled clinicians who have years of experience. You know, when I started out uh, at the People's Health and Wellness Clinic, I think it was in 2012, um, babe, your wife, Catherine, was the head nurse. We had a nice uh, working relationship. And uh and I used to kind of keep track in my mind, uh, and I would never say this to a patient, but I would keep track of how long, how many, how often I thought to myself, why did they wait so long? You know, it might be somebody that came in with a diabetic complication, somebody that uh, came in with, uh, you know, shortness of breath that turned out to be, um, you know, uncontrolled COPD or. Or, or someone with abdominal pain that turned out to have gallbladder disease that could have been taken care of much earlier. And, and so that kind of is what kept me uh, as working and, and in, this, uh, in the free clinic is, is to try to decrease the number of times I would think to myself, why do you wait so long? And because we're there, you come in, we will do what we need to do. You will not pay. Uh, if you have even, we take care of people who are underinsured, and we take care of lots of Medicaid patients who can't get in to see a, a regular clinic. So, um, so that's that is it is true that um, that's our mission: have a, have a facility available to people so they don't have to wait so long. Forbes, thank you for the call. I really appreciate uh, you weighing in here. That's that that's great. Uh, uh, Dr. Alan Ramsey, um, when you when you look at the at the COVID nineteen crisis, and and I mean, I just if you were to graph this out, you'd have to you'd have this um, this line of people getting sick, which is way on the upswing nationally, certainly less so in Vermont, thankfully. Uh, but and then meanwhile, you would have the uh, l- compare that with a line the line measuring people who have health insurance, and that is sloping downward at the same time. Uh, that's got to be galling to somebody like you. Yeah, it, it's 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 mainly scary, you know. And and we have we have a system where uh, much of our working age population has health insurance that's linked to employment, mm-hmm. employer sponsored insurance. So what happens when they're laid off or furloughed or lose their job? Which you know, which we've had a big you know, drop in employment in in Vermont during the pandemic. That go, that health insurance oftentimes goes along with it, with their loss of job, and and that's a national problem. Uh, it's not just a, a Vermont problem, and and so, you know, the that's one of the things that the pandemic and the economic crisis has exposed 
is the fact that relying on employer-sponsored insurance, linking insurance to employment, may not be the best thing for how we provide health care to everybody um, because this may not be the last pandemic that occurs. You know, and this has just exposed things in our health care payment system. Yeah, and, and I, you know, that is a very good point that this may not be the last pandemic. In fact, I hate to be a super pessimist here, but I would think the chances of that uh, being the case that we are going to see pandemics in the future. Just, I mean, the odds are uh, it's going to happen. Um, what, what do you think from a? I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I know maybe your your field is in epidemiology or or, or whatever, but I I wonder, do you worry that that this is going to be a more frequent phenomenon going into the future, or uh, is it still something that, uh, I mean, people talk about the last huge pandemic in the United States was the eight, uh, 1918 flu um, hundred more than 100 years ago. Are we going to wait another 100 years, or are, are we going to see another, another virus pop up in three or five years? Well, it's, uh, you know, you're right. I'm not a public health expert or an epidemiologist, uh, um, but, uh, you know, my hope is that if, if, if it is inevitable that it occurs again, that we'd be better prepared than we were this time. Yeah. Because I think preparedness is how you manage. Uh, you know, I, I know speaking to any public health expert or epidemiologist, it's, it's the preparedness is what's going to make a difference in whether a localized epidemic becomes a pandemic. So um, I, I can't predict, you know, but I will say, and this gives me a chance to express my other concern about this particular one we're in, is that uh, as we get into the fall and winter, where every primary care clinician I know uh, prepares themselves to take care of more people with respiratory illness, typical seasonal flu, mm-hmm. Uh, how that, you know, we're, it's yet to be determined how that is going to play out this particular year. So everybody needs to get a flu shot and get it soon. Uh, and and that's the best thing we can do, just like wearing masks and socially distancing and protecting ourselves if we're vulnerable to COVID, get that flu shot. Is that something that you're doing at the clinic there? We, well, we haven't, again... Our discussion last week uh, really focused around whether we should do it as part of our in-person visit or let's just have a flu clinic, flu shot clinic. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I suspect that the safest and simplest thing for us to do is to have a clinic there and just invite people to come and get flu shots, just like you get them at the drugstore, you get them to the visiting nurse association if you're homebound. Uh, get them through your primary care office, but come to the Blanchard building when we announce a clinic where we can provide flu shots. Yeah. Now, um, I, we, we actually had a segment about flu shots on just in the previous half hour here on the program, and, uh, uh, one, one thing we heard is that they can range in price from, I think, $38 to $72, depending on the, uh, diff- different formulations and so on, for someone who doesn't have insurance. Now, the, the, the uh, lucky thing for people with insurance is that generally insurance will pay, uh, for the, for the flu shot, and, uh, so it, 
sort of looks free to the person going to get one. But if in the case of somebody who's underinsured or uninsured uh, and they and they want to get a flu shot, uh, it, you know, it's a, basically you got to come up with the cash, uh, $38 to $72, I think, with the figures I heard. Uh, at your clinic, uh, the People's Health and Wellness Clinic in Barry, that, that once the person is, is in and, de- and deemed eligible to receive the care the services that you all provide, then it would be free, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's a heck of a resource. I just want to make sure, I mean, one of the things that, that I try to remind people of when I have you or, or someone else with the clinic on is just that you're there. I think there are still probably some people in the community who, are uh, needful of your services, eligible for your services, and don't come in because they just don't know. Uh, right. Is it, I mean, to what extent is that true, and, and, and what do you do about that? Yeah, we, we have, uh, over the years, we've talked about how we should promote the, our availability, and then, you know, for a while, you know, we, uh, we I remember we had a debate about putting up uh, flyers in the, um, in the restrooms in the local bars, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, in the, or in the bowling alley, you know, and, right? Yeah, uh, you know, where people do congregate or you know potentially uh, uninsured. So, um, so we we really don't do that very well. We don't market ourselves as well as we should. But we're we're trying to figure that out now, um, given the fact that we'll be in a new site. So people at least need to know that. That we're going to be in a in a, a different location than we've been for many many years. Right. Uh, you know they're used to coming to that you know five five three North Main Street uh, mm-hmm. house. Uh, yep. Now they'll be going down to uh, fourth floor on the, in the Blanchard building. So, Doctor Ramsey, you were mentioning the Blanchard block downtown is the new location. Does that mean that uh, that that spot on North Main Street there will, will that close, or are you going to have two locations, or how will that work? Uh, no, Dave, Dave. We will um, we will keep both, we will keep the North Main Street office uh, intact. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where the medical records will be stored. That's where we have uh, medications that we can distribute and other um, other uh, medical resources. So um, no, we will and we'll will have both offices functioning when you call. Uh, you'll still, uh, we'll have a receptionist or a nurse at, um, at the North Main Street. And, and so it's, it's kind of a, it'll be kind of a hybrid to start. Mm-hmm. But it, it just wasn't practical for us to move everything. Yeah. Um, particularly the, uh, medication closet. Um, so, um, so they're both, both will be there. But our inpatient visit, our in-person visits will be at uh, in the Blanchard Building, uh, new facility. Um, so, um, and, and also this new facility is is only temporary uh, uh, through December. Uh, we may have to. Uh, we have been looking for other permanent sites um, that could be renovated in the in the very area that are convenient uh, on the bus line, etc. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, it's a lot of uh, a lot of transition going on for our, our particular free clinic. Uh, just so that your re- your listeners know, you know, we're not the only free clinic. There's a network of clinics throughout the state uh, that do the same services that we do, um, and it you know, 
formerly called the Vermont Coalition of Clinics for the Uninsured, and so you can find that. You can Google that, and, and there is a new name, which I haven't gotten familiar with enough to remember. Mm-hmm. But we have a network. This is, Vermont is a, Vermonters care about each other, and, uh, and, and they, and so they are willing to provide this network of free clinics to people that, uh, is particularly important now. Uh, so, yeah, that's it, it. Certainly is important now, and I, I think your uh, your the the work that you do there, Doctor Ramsey. Uh, my hats off to you and your end of the staff there, as well as the volunteers, all of all the folks who come in uh, and help out there. Um, they are really doing. Uh, Doing a lot of uh, important stuff for the community, and and that's true as you mentioned of the other clinics around the state, the the sort of uh, the sort of uh, sister uh, or brother clinics, sibling clinics maybe uh, around the state uh, doing uh, the same sort of thing, and it's uh, it is really uh, something that is a valuable community uh, resource, and uh, thank you for that. That's that's terrific. And, and thank you for joining me on the Dave Graham Show here. We are brought out of time uh, t- for today's uh, program, but I really appreciate you spending some time with us and, and uh, filling us in on uh, what the challenges and opportunities are facing your organization. And it's always good talking with you. Uh, thank you, Dave, for inviting me and uh, for helping me get the word out about uh, how we care for the uninsured. Yep. Okay. Well, uh, that is about it for today's uh, Dave Graham show here on WDEV FM and AM. Stay tuned now for uh, Bill Sayer Common Sense Radio, and uh, we'll be back tomorrow morning with another edition of our program. Have a good afternoon, everybody.